Turn with me to Philippians chapter 4 as we finish this book of Philippians today. We're going to be looking at the last three verses of the book of Philippians, verses 21 through 23 of chapter 4. Next week, we will start a short series in the book of Haggai and encourage you to go ahead and read ahead. It's just a couple of chapters long. I think it will be a very enriching um, study for us, particularly as we just recently studied Daniel, and I think those two books are paired well together. Before we go to God's Word together, let's go to Him again in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we open Your Word, we pray that You would be here with us as our guide and our teacher. We cannot do this on our own, left to our own devices. We begin to think that this whole book is about us, but rather it is about you. So Lord, we pray that you would show us yourself as we open your word, that you would convict us of our sin and lead us to the truth. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So a very popular story, especially this time of year, Charles Dickens' classic, A Christmas Carol, there is a character in the story that by the name of Tiny Tim that I'm all, I'm sure you're all familiar with. And of course Tiny Tim is, is very sick. And as you read through the story, highly, highly recommended by the way, there's lots of actually good audio books that you can get uh, from it that are just fantastic. Um, Tiny Tim kind of represents what Ebenezer Scrooge, who's like the main character, knows to be wrong with the world. He knows that things like sickness and disease and, and poverty and all these things exist. Yet he, who has all these means, is hesitant to prevent any of it. He doesn't want to be involved in the everyday lives of he, those that he sees lower than himself. His pursuits are one-tracked. He's financially motivated. Though he's lonely and miserable, he only wants to hoard wealth and to spread his misery to anyone who would listen. And this, of course, is contrasted by Tiny Tim, who is desperately poor and sick and yet proudly proclaims blessing on everyone. His famous line, of course, God bless us, everyone. As we move across the finish line of this book today, we've encountered many different themes throughout, but the most, one of the most prevalent themes in the book is the Philippian church is being a blessing to Paul, a financial blessing, a blessing in prayer in many different ways that they have blessed the apostle in his ministry. Then the apostle then is using that as a way to teach us how we ought to be a blessing to others, and ultimately how Christ was a blessing to us, humbling himself to death on a cross so that his people could have salvation. The last three verses could easily be seen as a kind of a, a matter of form, as you know, most of the New Testament uh, books kind of end this way, meaning it's simply the way Paul closes his letter, that there's nothing really substantial here or anything to learn, but that's quite the contrary. If we gloss over it, we'll miss God's blessing for the church then, and of course His blessing for us now, how He intends to use these words to bless us. They're not only a standard greeting, but it's a pronouncement of blessing on the saints as a whole, and on every individual believer. So as we consider this text, I want to consider it in three main ideas. First, the call to God to fellowship, the power of God to convert, and then finally the grace of God in blessing. So with that, let's look together at the text, 
Philippians chapter 4, verses 21 through 23. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Philippians 4, 21 through 23. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So as we come to the end of this book, one of the important tasks of finishing a book is to make sure you bring the full context to bear on the end. All these things are working themselves forward. Growing up as a church, in the church as a non-believer, I saw the book, the Bible really as either a book of hero stories, which was kind of the Old Testament, or a book of these disjointed, like, words for life, God's little instruction book type teaching in the New Testament. Unfortunately, it's often taught this way today as we see the Bible as verses lifted off the page to make us, so we can apply it to whatever situation is going on in our lives. One of the great things about walking through books of the Bible is that you're often, and you have to, you have to see it in its whole context, the whole story of God's redemptive work. These aren't just verses about my life today. These are words to people who lived and worked and loved and died long ago. There is no Philippian church today. They were God's covenant people in a distant time gone by, and they are no less or no more important than we are today. As we move into that study of Haggai next week, it's important for us to remember historical context. Remember that the context of each verse needs the whole book to come around it so that we can understand it. So as we close this book, we see the themes of fellowship with the saints and God's converting power here at the end and God's infinite blessing that we have in Christ. Yet these aren't themes that are new to us just now. It's not as if Paul waited to these last three verses to kind of bring these things out, but they've been woven throughout the entirety of the book. Throughout the, throughout the letter, Paul underscores the importance of fellowship as he repeatedly calls the people to unity, reminds them of their relationship that they have with him and then with other believers as they've been in and out of the different churches in the area. Our fellowship isn't merely the time that we spend together. And unfortunately, a lot of times in our church today, we think of the word fellowship as just time that we spend together. But it's something that goes much greater than our mere proximity to one another. We are directed in how we should consider one another as more significant than ourselves. And in that direction, back in 2 verse 4, we are commanded, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We are reminded that our unity doesn't rest in our ability to feel a certain way about one another. But remember that we are linked together eternally in Christ, regardless of how we feel. It's why we, it's why when I can see brothers once a year at Senate or something like that, or even every, once every five years, I'm able to still have sweet fellowship with them because we have this mind together in Christ. There is something that unifies us beyond the time that we spend together on this earth. And concerning God's power to convert, we learn in chapter one that He has granted it to us that we would believe. This is His gift to us, our belief. 
The faith that He requires of us, this He gives us. And 2.13 reminds us that it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. That whatever gain we had, that we can count it all rubbish comparing to, to knowing Christ. In Him and because of His work, we have been changed. He is powerful still in us. We are called to work this out. We talked about that, working out our salvation, right? But not to earn His favor, but to know more and more about the favor that we have in Him. The infinite blessing, of course, that we have in Christ is found throughout. Last week in particular, as we read that He will supply all your needs according to the riches that we have in Christ Jesus. God's intention is to bless us according to His great riches. It doesn't mean that we're going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, but it means that we have an inheritance in Christ that surpasses anything that we can know or understand on this earth. And that whatever blessing we receive here on earth is but a small taste of the glory that we have waiting in eternity with Him. And though we only have these three small verses today, it's important that we understand them in the context of the whole, or we'll just glance over them and kind of see them as, okay, we're done now, and let's move on. So as we come through these verses, we see these three main things coming out. First, the call of God to fellowship. Look with me again at verse 21. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. There are a few greetings here. They are short and sweet. First, we are told to greet every saint in Christ Jesus. And this may seem insignificant, right? I think it's very important, though, for the life of the church to understand what it means to greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Because we've all been a part of groups where it didn't seem like we really fit in. Right? We've all been a part of that group. Maybe we look around and we start to think, well, these people have so much in common. I seem to be kind of the odd duck out around here. We've all had that experience. Sometimes it's just in our head, right? And we kind of know that. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's very real. Might be because people are mean sometimes or purposefully excusive, exclusive. That happens. But more than likely, people just aren't thinking. Right? They're just kind of going through their life. We tend to go about our own lives with blinders on. We easily see those who are closest to us, like friends and family, but not always considering those who are literally right on the outside of that bubble. In the world, this may be an acceptable norm for existence to kind of go around through life and just only seeing those who are directly in front of your nose. But in the church, this can't be. The instructions here to greet every saint is important because each saint is one for whom Jesus gave His life. We may not have the same life or preferences or point of view on things, but they are all part of God's family. And that doesn't mean, don't hear this, we don't have to be like buddy-buddy with everyone, right? Because you, you start doing that and you get superficial really quickly. So I'm not, try, I'm not suggesting the whole buddy-buddy thing. But we should make every effort to greet every saint. Make folks feel welcome. Make sure everyone who wants to be a part is given that opportunity. And even on that, make sure those who don't want to be a part are encouraged to do so for their sake and for the sake of the body as a whole. Just like Tiny Tim teaches us, God bless us, every one. 
We are all part of His church together and everyone deserves and needs the blessing of fellowship. The next part, the brothers who are with me greet you, is also significant. Where is Paul? He's in Rome in prison. The brothers who are with him. Remember names like Timothy and Epaphroditus who, who love this church. They're in Philippi, which is a thousand miles away, who love the church so much they were willing to risk their lives for it. Remember in chapter 2 that there were some who were mentioned that were against Paul for some reason. How they were seeking their own interests rather than those they were in Christ. This is always going to be an issue in the church. As long as there is sin on earth. But it's always comforting to hear when someone has faithful brothers and sisters around them who are able to support For them to hear the brothers who are with me, to hear Paul saying this from prison, that he has brothers who are with him, would be encouraging and a relief for those who are praying for Paul. And then in verse 22, the beginning of that verse, we have all the saints greet you. So this isn't just a greeting that should go to each Christian, every one. We mentioned that. But it's one that comes from an entire congregation to another entire congregation in another part of the world. And we miss this in our world that seems so small today. For many in Philippi, Rome might as well have been a fantasy land. They were never going to go there. They were only heard about this place that exists a thousand miles away. But going there is this whole other thing. And those brothers travel in every town telling us stories about what's going on in other parts of the world. We have I have brothers that, that travel from other parts of the world and tell us what's going on in other parts of the world. In Washington State, we have a church now in our presbytery. And in California, we have a church now. And I, I know that those churches exist. I know that they're there, right? But to know that there are brothers and sisters who worship the same Christ, who share the same sacred Scripture, who have the same struggles in this world is a comfort to us. When they give their greetings from their church, and these are people that I'll probably never meet, places that I'll never probably go, but these are a church who are eager to be a part of our group and to know what's going on in our lives. That is a comforting thing. And only Christ can bind us together in this way. We worship a God who brings together people who would otherwise have no business knowing one another and caring about one another. But because of the work of Jesus, we are eternally bound together. We are called to love one another as He has loved us, and that's what makes this next part so striking. Sometimes there are surprises among our number, and we have to remember to rejoice, and that brings us to the power of God to convert. Look with me again at verse 22. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. So understand what we just read there. We could gloss over this really quickly, but we're not going to. There are those in Caesar's household who also send their greetings to the church there in Philippi. Nero, you've probably heard the word Nero before. He was a, the emperor at the time. Nero was not known for his friendliness and his cheerful demeanor. Rather, he is known as one of the worst Christ church to ever live. He would later send Paul to the chopping block and have him executed for being a Christian for no other reason than just being a Christian, just like he did for many countless hundreds of Christians in those days. 
Yet there were members of his household who were believers and who sent their hello to Philippi along with Paul. Imagine the shock of reading this letter for the first time. We miss it. We can't, we can't really understand that kind of shock. I don't want to then make it comparable by listing someone in our own day, you know, compare Nero to anyone because it's really easy to make caricatures of people. But imagine someone hating this church and we all knew that they hated this particular congregation and then getting a letter from a missionary and that, that letter said, oh, you know those people who hate you? Well, a few of them send their greetings to you as fellow believers in Christ. What would we think? Our first reaction might be disbelief or doubt. I remember hearing back a long time ago now of the famous serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer. You guys have all heard of Jeffrey Dahmer, I'm sure. And that his, later in his life he, com- he converted to Christianity in prison before he was murdered. And I remember when it happened, like it was yesterday. I was a new believer. Many in the church were reacting by saying this can't be true. He was a horrible person. He was a murderer. And I just went on and on and on about his list of why he couldn't possibly be a Christian. He was all those things. For sure. But doesn't the Spirit have the ability to cleanse us of sin? Does Jesus have the power to convert? Paul had this to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if you'll turn there with me please. We all know someone who represents Caesar's household to us who couldn't possibly believe that they would convert or Maybe we believe that they're not converted today because of our feelings toward them. Whatever it be. First Corinthians chapter 6, starting at verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither, sexual, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, sanctified, justified, all in the name of Jesus Christ. Does God have the power to convert sinners? What about those in the house of Nero? Could he convert them? What about Jeffrey Dahmer? What about me? If he can bring about my salvation and my continued sanctification, We have a God then who is able to do much greater things than miracles like parting the Red Sea. He is able to bring the dead to life. Those who are dead in their trespasses, He brings them alive in Christ Jesus our Lord. Tertullian, who was a believer in the 2nd and 3rd century, he was born in modern day Tunisia in a place called Carthage, Africa. 
Tunisia is 98% Muslim today, but the church was once thriving there. And he wrote this concerning his day, concerning the church in the, in the time in the Roman Empire, which was being persecuted at the time. He said this concerning the church. But we are but of yesterday, meaning we're not even that old. We are, uh, are but yesterday, but we have filled your empire, your cities, your islands, your forts, your towns, your marketplaces, your very military camps and wards and companies and palace and senate and forum. All of these swarm with Christians. We have nothing left to you but your temples of your gods. They are the only places that you can name in your empire that there are not Christians. This is just from a handful of men who were faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. And at this point, just a couple of hundred years later, the place is swarming with them. And 150 years after Tertullian wrote these words, Rome would legally be be declared a Christian empire. We worship a God who has the power to save whomever He will for His own glory, for His name, and for His renown. Places like Tunisia and its 98% Muslim population would be powerless to the God to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is Lord. If He so chose, He could make it so the cities and islands and forts and towns and marketplaces of this world would be swarming with Christians. Brothers and sisters in Christ, are we praying to that end? We pray regularly for this community, and we should, absolutely, that's our first duty. We know and love the people here. We should be praying for them. Yet, consider how you can pray for the churches in this world as well. That God would raise up laborers to send faithful people who would go and proclaim the gospel. Pray even more boldly than that. Pray that God would raise up laborers in places like Tunisia and send them here to preach the gospel in our country. That one day saints of that distant place could add their hello. And that brings us to the last point, the grace of God and blessing. Look with me again at verse 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This last verse is what is known as a benediction. We have a benediction in our service, which is the Latin, it just in Latin it means to speak good. Every service we have here, we end it with a benediction. And it's more than me just speaking good to you. Rather, it is a pronouncement of God's blessing upon His people. Rightly understood, rather than simply ascribing the attribute of blessing, not be blessed, right? It's not just a simple attribute or ascribing that blessing. We, The minister of the gospel is pronouncing a blessing on the people of God. And it is to be received as such. When the apostle says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, he is pronouncing this blessing upon the people there in the church and Philippi and even the people today, here today. This isn't merely saying that they have it. It is pronouncing this blessing upon us. God's grace is something that we need more and more in our lives. We need to carry it out as we carry out the very work of God. We need it as we fellowship with one another. We need it as we are preaching and teaching the gospel to the world. We need it in every aspect of our lives. The idea that God's grace would be with our spirit is more than just a physical blessing. 
but it's one that soaks to the very core of our being. That the grace of God would go deep into our inmost parts, into our very souls. In Psalm 133, which we had as our call to worship today, turn, turn there with me, or you can look at your worship bulletin. The, the whole text is there. It's a very short psalm. But this psalm is a picture of this, of God's blessing coming upon us in this metaphorical kind of sense. In the, in the psalmist, or in this case, David the psalmist writes this metaphor for us to understand how the blessing of God is coming upon us. And he uses this oil going upon Aaron's robe and his beard. Now, so I'll read the text of Psalm 133. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life evermore. This is a picture of God's blessing pouring out upon the believer, pouring down on Aaron's beard and even onto his robes, soaking him with this oil, is the special kind of anointed oil that is going on to the priest of that day. It symbolizes the blessing permeating us in every part of our being, blessing our spirit. It is the grace of God. It is not just yours as an individual either, but it is yours as the church of Christ. It is yours, this blessing that we have. It is the thing that unifies us as one people, Christ in our lives. Permeates to our very souls and that we have it in abundance in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so for the unbeliever here, understand this kind of blessing that we have in Christ, there is nothing in the world that replicates this or even gets close. And you already know this. There's temporary blessings to be sure. Lots of temporary blessings in the world, but nothing that permeates to your soul. And it's your soul that needs salvation, and there is no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. The Bible is plain. Those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so the exhortation for you is just that. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Call upon His name today. So for believers, we have this great letter before us here today. We've enjoyed getting to know it over the last several months. I encourage you to read through it again. It's relatively short. And just read through it again. It's an entirety and kind of pull it forward and to learn about all the things that we've been going over the last few months. We have this great call to unity in the one spirit that we have together. Let us endeavor to unity all the more as we see the darkness of our, the days that are around us. The light can only be found in Christ and in Him each and every one can have a blessing. And let us be a blessing to one another, to each and every saint, and then to the lost world who needs Jesus. Let's go to Him in prayer.